Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up today, how a group of scientists are wondering if a lump of rock from beyond the solar system might turn out to be an alien spacecraft. So it's long and thin and and sort of roughly cigar-shaped, and there's nothing else in the solar system that we've ever seen that's anything like that shape. Also on the show, a pioneering patient who set out to find a cure for his own life-threatening disease. I think a nice analogy when thinking about what we're doing, uh, it's very much almost a venture capital approach to research. And how recent droughts and storms in Mexico, Chile and California are behind a global shortfall in avocados. The avocado is a very difficult fruit to grow. It's very sensitive to the environmental conditions. So to start, let's look to the heavens. A piece of tumbling space rock has this week been making the astronomical headlines. The speed at which it's moving relative to the sun means it cannot be native to our solar system. And as if that kind of first isn't exciting enough, some scientists are entertaining in the backs of their minds an even more exciting possibility. I'm joined by The Economist science correspondent Tim Cross. Hi, Tim. Hi, Jason. What is this object, first of all? So as you say, it's a piece of tumbling space rock that was first spotted in uh, October by a telescope in Hawaii. Uh, and for that reason, it's been given the name uh, Oumuamua. It's interesting because, as you say, it seems to come from outside the solar system, and it's the first time that we've seen anything that comes from outside the solar system in the history of astronomy. And we're talking about it this week because it might not just be rock? Well, as you say, there are two levels of, of sort of, of excitement, and a few scientists are wondering, you know, sort of after hours down the pub without saying it out loud too much, whether this thing might not be an asteroid after all. What if it's an alien spaceship? Well, I mean, what would give them that idea in the first place? There's loads of rocks out there. Well, yeah, so, so, so two things. One is that it's not from the solar system. It's from outside the solar system. But secondly, its shape is very strange. So it's long and thin and, and sort of roughly cigar-shaped, and there's nothing else in the solar system that we've ever seen that's anything like that shape. And if your job was to design interstellar spacecraft, you might start with something roughly cigar-shaped as your, your sort of basic layout because that minimizes the amount of scouring and damage that you get from the interstellar dust as you're motoring along between the stars. And so where is this thing now? So at the moment, it's leaving the solar system in the general direction of the constellation of Pegasus. And we know from tracing its its path back and the speed at which it's traveling, there's no way it could possibly you know, be native to the solar system. It's going too fast to be gravitationally bound to the sun. You know, it, It's a sort of passing visitor that we aren't going to see again. The sort of back of the mind or, or sort of over a beer talk about it being something other than mere rock is, is going beyond mere talk. Yeah. So there's an outfit called the uh, Breakthrough Listen Project, which is one of the many uh, scientific organizations funded by Yuri Milner, who's the Russian billionaire. He set up a rival to the Nobel Prizes called the Breakthrough Science Prizes, which we've uh, talked about before. They are dedicated to SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and they have got some time on one of the biggest radio telescopes in the world in Virginia. 
and they are steering that telescope to point at Oumuamua and see if they can hear anything interesting. So, so what's what's your take? What are the odds they're going to actually hear from from ETs? Well, I don't want to be proved spectacularly wrong in future, but you know, because it's a big question. Well, exactly, uh, but but pretty low. I mean, if you look at what we know about this thing already, we've had some sort of preliminary data from it. The color matches the color we would expect it to be if it was just a sort of hunk of itinerant space rock, and then just the sort of the probability argument, you know, there's an awful lot of space out there. And even if there are space going aliens, presumably not that many spaceships. So most things that you see uh, from your telescopes on Earth are not going to be spaceships. So is it just because uh, it's the it's very long odds against something that would be spectacular? Is, is that the only I mean, it sounds as if it's kind of already zipped up. I mean, I, th- I think essentially, yeah, that's it. I mean, so almost certainly not. But, you know, on the 2% chance, the less than 2%, on the infinitesimal chance that this is a spaceship, I mean, it would be nice to know, right? And I suppose the breakthrough listen people would say, uh, you know, even if this turns out not to be a spacecraft, which it almost certainly won't be, it's still interesting to study it in as much detail as we can because we've never seen an interstellar object of any kind before. So the more we can learn about it, the better. More broadly, the hunt for ETs is kind of widening and maybe even becoming more legitimate in the in the broader view. Yeah. So there's always a bit of a giggle factor to these stories, right, which is fair enough. But it, one of the, the sort of interesting results coming out of astronomy in the last few years is, you know, extrasolar planets, so planets that orbit stars other than the sun, are really, really common. And, you know, many people had assumed this would be the case, and it turns out that that it actually is. There are literally, you know, billions and billions of them in the Milky Way galaxy, and some, you know, reasonable fraction of them are at the right distance from their stars for there to be water on the surface, and we're starting slowly to identify them. And that's an effort that's going to speed up in the next few years. So next year, we've got the launch of something called the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which is designed to look at the entire sky and find several thousand exoplanets which are near in in sort of cosmic terms to Earth, near enough that the next generation of of big telescopes, either on the ground or in space, might be able to have a sort of closer look at them. Those kinds of efforts presume we could find life as we know it, but there's no guarantees that the life out there is as we know it. No, but if it's much easier to look for something that you understand than to look for something that you don't understand. So if you're looking for aliens, a good starting point might be, you know, let's assume that they use water like we do, because water is very weird stuff and it has all kinds of strange uh, sort of chemical properties that make it really useful for life. So it's not completely unreasonable to assume that evolution presumably works the same way throughout the universe. So it's not unreasonable to assume it would have stumbled upon some somewhat similar biochemistry. Maybe there are aliens out there with completely weird biochemistries that we can't even think of. But that means, you know, unless they come and land on the White House lawn, it's quite hard for us to, to, to find them. Tim, fascinating as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jason. You're listening to The Economist's science and technology podcast, Babbage. Next up, rare diseases are something of a blind spot in medical science. There are few cases from which to collect data to study them, and there is little economic incentive for drug companies to chase treatments and cures. But there's a third challenge. The innovation process itself isn't suited to tackling diseases. David Fagenbaum learned this at first hand. As a medical student in 2010, his organs started failing fast. On his deathbed, doctors weren't sure if the cause was a cancer, a virus, or something else altogether. With a cocktail of treatments, he recovered and learned that he has something called Castleman's disease, a rare fatal disorder that results in multiple organ failure. When doctors said they couldn't save his life, the student took his care into his own hands. Now a doctor himself, he's devoted his life to finding a remedy to Castleman's disease, despite having had four more nearly fatal attacks. He realized he had to change the practice of innovation in medicine. 
David's been speaking to my colleague Kenneth Kukier, who began by asking him to explain the disease's symptoms. Castleman's is a rare inflammatory disorder which involves the immune system hyperactivating and then attacking the body's vital organs, such as the liver, the kidneys, the bone marrow. There are about 5,000 patients diagnosed each year in the U.S., which makes it about as common as ALS. And my subtype, idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, carries with it about a 35% five-year mortality. Castleman's affects individuals of all ages, and it's so deadly because so little is done, but we're working to change that. So I have to ask a very sensitive question. How is it that you're alive right now, then? I've been very fortunate. I uh, have had some really challenging moments. As, as you mentioned, I've had five life-threatening occurrences of this disease, and um, they all occurred in the first three and a half years. I was fortunate that chemotherapy saved my life each time, but unfortunately, chemotherapy purely obliterates the immune system, but then as soon as the immune system comes back, it attacks again. So as you mentioned, three and a half years ago, I, I took my treatment into my own hands, and based on research I had done here at UPenn and as part of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, I identified a treatment that I thought could maybe work and started myself on it three and a half years ago. Now, part of the success has been that you have identified a treatment that has shown promise. So to tackle the disease itself, you've identified shortcomings in the way that medical science innovates, and you've had to overcome that. Tell me how you've done that. You're absolutely right. So I I earlier mentioned uh, what we've done. I didn't mention how we've done it. And, And the way that we've been able to generate these major breakthroughs in understanding the disease is through what we call the collaborative network approach. It's, it's really a, a completely transformative and new way of doing biomedical research. Rather than raising money and inviting researchers to apply to use the money how they want to use it, we decided we would take a totally different approach through the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. We started out by building a community crowdsourcing amongst that community to prioritize what research should be done, and then selecting the best projects to do and recruiting the best people in the world to go do it. So we weren't going to wait for the right person to apply for the right project at the right time, which is the way that biomedical research typically moves forward. Rather than waiting for the right person to apply at the right time with the right project, We figured out what the right project was through crowdsourcing, through turning to the global community. This approach has led to so many important breakthroughs in our understanding of this disease. So tell me about a couple of those breakthroughs. Sure. So um, the first one I'll highlight is that we know the immune system becomes hyperactivated, but we don't know why it becomes hyperactivated. Castleman disease was first described in 1954, and here we are in 2017 still not understanding why this happens. But through our collaborative network approach and through our crowdsourcing process, the number one idea that was prioritized by the global community was to do something called viral hunting. And that's where you basically say, maybe we haven't found a virus that's known, but maybe there's a virus that's not yet discovered that could be causing this inflammation and this immune response. And so based on that prioritization, we reached out to the best person in the world, a gentleman named Ian Lipkin at Columbia University, to do viral hunting. And he recently completed that process, and he did not find a novel virus. And you may say, how is that an important breakthrough? Well, that has crossed off one of our three potential hypotheses for what is driving this disease. What happens to the intellectual property that is developed by the research you're doing? That's a great question. So we are 100% patient-focused, and our 
mission, our vision, our, our goal is to cure this disease. And so when individuals contribute their ideas for what research should be done, it goes into a collective pot where they're basically, through a public forum, co-digital, contributing their idea for what should be done. And they recognize that that idea for the study will then happen and will then occur. Um, no one is contributing an idea for the answer because no one knows the answer. They're contributing an idea for the question and how to try to answer the question. And we then take those ideas for what question we should go after and how do we answer it, and we go find the best person in the world to go do it. So the intellectual property that's generated is from the study that's done, um, but what we collect through crowdsourcing is the idea for what study should we even be doing in the first place. Has the process that you're now pioneering had any influence in other rare diseases and how we tackle those? Yes, I'm, I'm aware of at least two other rare diseases. One is called Syngap1, another is fibrous dysplasia. Um, I get contacted almost every week from someone in the rare disease community with questions about the approach. So I believe it is being used by other groups. And I think a nice analogy when thinking about what we're doing, uh, it's very much a uh, almost a venture capital approach to research. So, you know, one approach in venture capital is to wait for companies to come to you and to and to pick the best company that comes to you with their idea. But the reality is, is the most successful venture capital companies don't just wait for entrepreneurs to come to them. They go out and do very intensive research to find out the best industries to go into, the best companies, the best entrepreneurs. And they go out and they source the best companies to invest in. And if there isn't a company doing what their internal research suggests is the best work, they'll actually start companies to fill those gaps. And that's really what we're doing with the CDCN. We're not just waiting for the quote-unquote entrepreneur to come to us with their idea. We're actually going out and we're sourcing what is the work that needs to be done tomorrow, what is the highest potential for a return. And in this case, it's not a financial return, it's a return on lives and a return on years of lives. And we want to know the best place to invest our money and our time. And then if there isn't someone doing it, we go, then go try to fill that gap by, by creating a new project in a new field which we hope, to your question earlier, we hope this spreads far beyond Castleman disease to many other uh, research organizations. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ken. If you've got any thoughts on the possibility of life on lumps of tumbling space rock or pioneering patients finding a cure to their own diseases, put them in an email to us. Send them to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, the great avocado shortage. Recent droughts and storms in Mexico, Chile, and California are behind the shortfall. Harvests in Mexico have fallen by 20%. Production in California dropped by more than 44%, according to the California Avocado Commission. It comes as the world's first avocadoria bar opens in Brooklyn, celebrating all things to do with this tasty, albeit quite fattening, green fruit. To explain more, I'm joined by The Economist's Albert Faber in our New York office. Albert, tell me first what, what this avocado bar in New York actually looks like. So the Avocadoria Bar is located deep in Brooklyn, and it's situated in what used to be industrial sort of complex with a bunch of warehouses. And in these warehouses, you have a number of startups that do all sorts of innovative things with food. And the Avocadoria Bar is one of them. And as you enter the warehouse... It is actually right there on your left-hand side. And what you see is basically you enter a food hall 
and you go through a glass door and then you have a bar and everything about the avocaderia bar is about the avocado so the interior is also it matches that you have an avocado plant on the counter and then you have a menu hanging on the wall and all the dishes that they serve everything is based on the avocado whether that's an avocado smoothie an avocado toast or uh, an avocado burger it's not in the bar in the traditional sense where you can sit down um, and have a drink and and eat something it's more like uh, I don't want to use the word fast food in terms of the concept where you come in and get your food but it really is sort of like that but the reason it is like that is because it's incorporated in a bigger food hall itself and why is there this shortage of supply well the reason why there has been a drop in supply of avocados is because the avocado is a very difficult fruit to grow it's very sensitive to the environmental conditions for example it is susceptible to droughts it cannot be too hot it cannot be too cold the slope of the terrain cannot be too steep the salinity cannot be too high or too low it depends on just the right amount or quality of water and in addition to that the plant has alternating bearings which means that it does not consistently grow the same amount of fruits the reason why it's so difficult and vulnerable in a way is because the envir- environmental conditions are rapidly changing or becoming more extreme and the fruit is not very well adapted to those changes and secondly researchers don't really yet fully understand the fruit it's a relatively new fruit that's been commercially grown only for the past 100 years so researchers are very much trying to figure out how to make the fruit more resistant and resilient lastly and probably one of the most consequential reasons why it is a difficult fruit and and we've seen a drop in production is because you cannot grow the avocado everywhere this relates to the difficult environmental conditions they have to be just right and the number of places where you can successfully grow avocados are just very limited there has been an uptick of the number of places where they are grown take for example chile peru and south africa but when you match that to the global demand increases it is going to be very challenging to see whether or not the production of avocados can actually keep up my thanks to the economist albert faber there and that's it for this edition of babbage don't forget to pick up the print edition of this week's economist or find us online at economist.com in london this is the economist 